Section 24 of Scott's Last Expedition. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Scott's Last Expedition, Volume 1. Journals of Robert Falcon Scott, arranged by Leonard Huxley. Chapter 12. Awaiting the Crozier Party. Friday, June 23, Saturday, June 24. Two quiet, uneventful days, and a complete return to routine. Sunday, June 25. I find I have made no mention of Cherry Gerard's first number of the revived South Polar Times presented to me on Midwinter Day. It is a very good little volume, bound by day in a really charming cover of carved venesta wood and sealskin. The contributors are anonymous, but I have succeeded in guessing the identity of the greater number. The editor has taken a statistical paper of my own on the plans for the southern journey and a well-written series article on the geological history of our region by Taylor. Except for editorial and meteorological notes, the rest is conceived in the light of Wayne. The worst is mediocre, except perhaps for a quaint play of words an amusing little skit on the sleeping bag argument. But an article entitled Valhalla appears to me to be altogether on a different level. It purports to describe the arrival of some of our party at the gates proverbial guarded by St. Peter. The humor is really delicious and nowhere at all forced. In the jokes of a small community, it is rare to recognize one which would appeal to an outsider, but some of the happier witticisms of this article seem to me fit for wider circulation than our journal enjoys at present. Above all, there is distinct literary merit in it, a polish which leaves you unable to suggest the betterment of a word anywhere. I unhesitatingly attribute this effort to Taylor, but Wilson and Gerard makes Mears responsible for it. If they're right, I shall have to own that my judgment of attributes is very much at fault. I must find out. Footnote. Captain Scott's judgment was not at fault. End of footnote. A quiet day, red church service as usual, in afternoon walked up the ramp with Wilson to have a quiet talk before he departs. I wanted to get his ideas as to the scientific work done. We agreed as to the exceptionally happy organization of our party. I took the opportunity to warn Wilson concerning the desirability of complete understanding with Ponting and Taylor with respect to their photographs and records on the return to civilization. The weather has been very mysterious of late. On the 23rd and the 24th, it continuously threatened a blizzard, but now the sky is clearing again with all signs of fine weather. Monday, June 26th. With a clear sky, it was quite twilighty at noon today. Already such signs of day are inspiriting. In the afternoon the wind arose with drift and again the prophets predicted a blizzard. After an hour or two the wind fell and we had a calm clear evening and night. The blizzards proper seem to be always preceded by an overcast sky in accordance with Simpson's theory. Taylor gave a most interesting lecture on the physiographic feature of the region traversed by his party in the autumn. 
His mind is very luminous and clear, and he treated the subject with a breadth of view which was delightful. The illustrative slides were made from Debenham's photographs, and many of them were quite beautiful. Ponting tells me that Debenham knows quite a lot about photography and goes to work in quite the right way. The lecture being a precis of Taylor's report, there is no need to recapitulate its matter. With a picture, it was startling to realize the very different extent to which tributary glaciers have carved the channels in which they lie. The Canadian glacier lies dead, but at the grade it has cut a very deep channel. The double curtain hangs at an angle of 25 degrees, with practically no channel. Mention was made of the difference of water found in Lake Bonnie by me in December 1903 and the Western Party in February 1911. It seems certain that water must go on accumulating in the lake during the two or three summer months, and it's hard to imagine that all can be lost again by the winter's evaporation. If it does, evaporation becomes a matter of primary importance. There was an excellent picture showing the find of sponges on the Coatlitz glacier. Heaps of large sponges were found containing corals and some shells, all representative of present-day fauna. How on earth did they get to the place where found? There was a good deal of discussion on the point, and no very satisfactory solution offered. I cannot help thinking that there is something in the thought that the glacier may have been weighted down with rubble which finally disengaged itself and allowed the ice to rise. Such speculations are interesting. Preparations for the start of the Croatia party are now completed and the people will have to drag 253 pounds per man, a big weight. They has made an excellent little blubber lamp for lighting. It has an annular wick and talc chimney. A small circular plate over the wick conducts the heat down and raises the temperature of combustion, so that the result is a clear white flame. We are certainly within measurable distance of using blubber in the most effective way for both heating and lighting. And this is an advance which is of very high importance to the future of Antarctic exploration. Tuesday, June 27, the Croatia party departed this morning in good spirits. Their heavy load was distributed on two nine-feet sledges. Ponting photographed them by flashlight and attempted to get a cinematograph picture by means of a flash candle. But when the candle was ignited, it was evident that the light would not be sufficient for the purpose, and there was not much surprise when the film proved a failure. The three travelers found they could pull their load fairly easily on the sea ice when the rest of us stood aside for the trial. I'm afraid they will find much more difficulty on the barrier, but there was nothing now to prevent them starting, and off they went. With helping contingent, I went round the Cape. Taylor and Nelson left the Razorback Island and report all well. Simpson, Mears and Gran continued and have not yet returned. Gran just back on ski, left party at five and a quarter miles, says Mears and Simpson are returning on foot. Reports a bad bit of surface between Tent Island and Glacier Tongue. It was well that the party had assistance to cross this. This winter travel is a new and bold venture, but the right men have gone to attempt it. All good luck go with them.
Coal consumption. Bowers reports that present consumption midwinter equals four blocks per day, 100 pounds. An occasional block is required for absolute magnetic hut. It reports eight and a half tons used since landing. This is in excess of four blocks per day as follows. Eight and a half tons in 150 days equals 127 pounds per dm equals 889 pounds per week or nearly 800 weights equals 20 and a half tons per year report august 4 used to date 9 tons equals 20160 pounds say 190 days at 106 pounds per day coal remaining 20 and a half tons estimate 8 tons to return of ship total estimate for year 17 tons we should have 13 or 14 tons for next year a fresh ms book quotation on the flyleaf where the queen's law does not carry it is irrational to exact an observance of other and weaker rules Rudyard Kipling. Confident of his good intention, but doubtful of his fortitude. So far as I can venture to offer an opinion on such a matter, the purpose of our being in existence, the highest object that human beings can set before themselves, is not the pursuit of any such chimera as the annihilation of the unknown, but it is simply the unwearied endeavor to remove its boundaries a little further from our little sphere of action. Wednesday, June 28th. The temperature has been hovering around minus 30. With a clear sky at midday, it was exceptionally light, and even two hours after noon, I was able to pick my way amongst the boulders of the ramp. We missed the crochet party. Lectures have ceased during its absence, so that our life is very quiet. Thursday, June 29th seemed rather stuffy in the hut last night. I found it difficult to sleep. I noticed a good many others in like case. I found the temperature was only 50 degrees, but that the small uptake on the stovepipe was closed. I think it would be good to have a renewal of air at bedtime, but don't quite know how to manage this. It was calm all night, and when I left the hut at 8.30, at nine, the wind suddenly rose to 40 miles per hour, and at the same moment the temperature rose 10 degrees. The wind and temperature curves show this sudden simultaneous change more clearly than usual. The curious circumstance is that this blow comes out of a clear sky. This will be disturbing to our theories, unless the wind drops again very soon. The wind fell within an hour almost as suddenly as it had arisen. The temperature followed only a little more gradually. One may well wonder how such a phenomenon is possible. In the middle of a period of placid calm and out of a clear sky, there suddenly rushed upon one this volume of comparatively warm air. It has come and gone like the whirlwind. Whence comes it, and whither goeth? Went round the bergs after lunch on ski. Splendid surface and quite a good light. 
we are now getting good records with uh, Tide Gage after a great deal of trouble. Day has given much of his time to the matter, and after a good deal of discussion has pretty well mastered the principles. We brought a self-recording instrument from New Zealand, but this was passed over to Campbell. It has not been an easy matter to manufacture one for our own use. The wire from the bottom weight is led through a tube filled with paraffin as in discovery days, and kept tight by a counterweight after passage through a block on a stanchion rising six feet above the flow. In his first instrument, they arranged for this wire to pass around a pulley, the revolution of which actuated the pen of the recording drum. This should have been successful, but for the difficulty of making good mechanical connection between the recorder and the pulley. Backlash caused an unreliable record, and this arrangement had to be abandoned. The motion of the wire was then made to actuate the recorder through a hinged lever, and this arrangement holds. But days and even weeks have been lost in grappling uh, the difficulties of adjustment between the limits of the tide and those of the recording drum. Then, when all seemed well, we found that the flow was not rising uniformly with the water. It is hung up with the beach ice. When we were considering the question of removing the whole apparatus to a more distant point, a fresh crack appeared between it and the shore, and on this hinge the flow seems to be moving more freely. Friday, June 30, 1911. The temperature is steadily falling. We are descending the scale of negative 30s, and today reached its limit, minus 39 degrees. Day has manufactured a current wane, a simple arrangement. Up to the present, he has used this near the Cape. There is little doubt, however, that the water movement is erratic and irregular inside the islands, and I have been anxious to get observations which will indicate the movement in the strait. I went with him today to find a crack which I thought must run to the north from Inaccessible Island. We discovered it about two to two and a half miles out, and found it to be an ideal place for such work. A fracture in the ice sheet which is constantly opening and therefore always etched with thin ice. I have told Day that I think a bottle weighted so as to give it a small negative buoyancy and attached to a fine line should give as good results as its wane and would be much handier. He now proposes to go one better and put an electric light in the bottle. We found that our loose dogs had been attacking a seal, and then came across a dead seal which had uh, evidently been worried to death uh, some time ago. It appears Dimitri saw more seal further to the north, and this afternoon Mears has killed a large one, as well as the one which was worried this afternoon. It is good to find the seal so close, but very annoying to find that the dogs have discovered their resting place. The long spell of fine weather is very satisfactory. Saturday, July 1, 1911. We have designed new ski boots and I think they're going to be a success. My object is to stick to the Whitfeld binding for sledging if possible. One must wear finesco on the barrier and with finesco alone a loose binding is necessary. For this we bought finnan bindings consisting of uh, leather toe straps and thong heel binding. 
with this arrangement, one does not have good control of his ski and stands the chance of a chaff on the tendon Achilles. Owing to the last consideration, many had decided to go with toe strap alone as we did in the discovery. This brought into my mind the possibility of using the iron crossbar and snap heel strap of the Whitfeld on a suitable overshoe. Evans PO has arisen well to the occasion as a bootmaker and has just completed a pair of shoes which are very nearly what we require. The soles have two thicknesses of seal skin cured with alum, stiffened at the foot with a layer of venesta board and raised at the heel on a block of wood. The upper part is large enough to contain a finesco and is secured by a simple strap. A shoe weighs 13 ounces against 2 pounds for a single ski boot, so that shoe and finesco together are less weight than a boot. If we can perfect this arrangement, it should be of the greatest use to us. Wright has been swinging the pendulum in his cavern. Prodigious trouble has been taken to keep the time, and this object has been immensely helped by the telephone communication between the cavern, the transit instrument, and the interior of the hut. The timekeeper is perfectly placed. Wright tells me that his ice platform proves to be five times as solid as a fixed piece of masonry used at Potsdam. The only difficulty is the low temperature, which freezes his breath on the glass window of the protective dome. I feel sure these gravity results are going to be very good. The temperature has been hanging in the minus 30s all day with calm and clear sky, but this evening a wind has sprung up without rise of temperature. It is now minus 32 degrees with a wind of 25 miles per hour, a pretty stiff condition to face outside. Sunday, July 2. There was wind last night, but this morning found a settled calm again, with temperature as usual about minus 35 degrees. The moon is rising again. It came over the shoulder of Erebus about 5 p.m. in second quarter. It will cross the meridian at night, worse luck, but such days as this will be pleasant even with a low moon. One is very glad to think the Crozier party are having such a peaceful time. Sunday routine and nothing much to record. Monday, July 3. Another quiet day. The sky more suspicious in appearance. Thin stratus cloud forming and dissipating overhead. Curling stratus clouds over Erebus. Wind of Cape Crozier seemed a possibility. Our people have been far out on the flow. It is cheerful to see the twinkling light of some worker at a waterhole or near the ring of distant voices or swish of ski. Tuesday, July 4. A day of blizzard and adventure. The wind arose last night, and although the temperature advanced a few degrees, it remained at a very low point considering the strength of the wind. This forenoon it was blowing 40 to 45 miles per hour, with a temperature minus 25 degrees to minus 28 degrees. No weather to be in the open. In the afternoon the wind modified slightly. Taylor and Atkinson went up to the ramp thermometer screen. After this, entirely without my knowledge, two adventurous spirits, Atkinson and Gran, decided to start off over the flow, making respectively for the north 
and South Bay thermometers, Archibald and Clarence. This was at 5.30. Gran was back by dinner at 6.45, and it was only later that I learned that it had gone no more than 200 or 300 yards from the land, and that it had taken him nearly an hour to get back again. Atkinson's continued absence passed unnoticed until dinner was nearly over at 7.15, although I had heard that the wind had dropped at the beginning of dinner, and that it remained very thick all round, with light snow falling. Although I felt somewhat annoyed, I had no serious anxiety at this time, and as several members came out of the hut, I dispatched them short distances to shout and show lanterns and arrange to have a paraffin flare lit on Wind Wayne Hill. Evans, P.O., Crean, and Keohan, being anxious for a walk, were sent to the north with a lantern. Whilst this desolatory search proceeded, the wind sprang up again from the south, but with no great force, and meanwhile the sky showed signs of clearing and the moon appeared dimly through the drifting clouds. With such a guide, we momentarily looked for the return of our wanderer, and with its continued absence our anxiety grew. At 9.30 Evans, P.O., and his party returned without news of him. And at last there was no denying the possibility of a serious accident. Between 9.30 and 10, proper search parties were organized, and I give the details to show the thoroughness which I thought necessary to meet the gravity of the situation. I had by this time learned that Atkinson had left with comparatively light clothing, and, still worse, with leather ski boots on his feet. Fortunately, he had wind clothing. P.O. Evans was away first with Crean, Kihan, and Dimitri, a light sledge, a sleeping bag, and a flask of brandy. His orders were to search the edge of, of the land and glacier through the sweep of the bay to the Barn Glacier and to Cape Barn Beyond, then to turn east along an open crack and follow it to Inaccessible Island. Evans, Lieutenant, with Nelson, Ford, and Hooper, left shortly after, similarly equipped to follow the shore of the South Bay in similar fashion, then turn out to the Razorback and search there. Next right, Gran and Lashley set out for the Bergs to look thoroughly about them, and from thence pass round and examine Inaccessible Island. After these parties got away, Mears and Debenham started with a lantern to search to and fro over the surface of our promontory. Simpson and Oates went out in a direct line over the northern flow through the Archibald thermometer, whilst Ponting and Taylor re-examined the tide crack towards the Barn Glacier. Meanwhile, they went to and fro Wind Wayne Hill to light at intervals upon its crest bundles of tow well soaked in petrol. At length Clissold and I were left alone in the hut, and as the hours went by I grew ever more alarmed. It was impossible for me to conceive how an able man could have failed to return to the hut before this or by any means found shelter in such clothing in such weather. Atkinson had started for a point a little more than a mile away. At 10.30 he had been five hours away. What conclusion could be drawn? And yet I felt it most difficult to imagine an accident on open flow with no worse pitfall than a shallow crack or a steep-sided snow drift. 
at least I could feel that every spot which was likely to be the scene of such an accident would be searched. Thus, 11 o'clock came without change, then 11.30 with its six hours of absence. But at 11.45 I heard voices from the Cape, and presently the adventure ended to my extreme relief when Mayers and Debenham led our wanderer home. He was badly frostbitten in the hand and less seriously on the face, and though a good deal confused as men always are on such occasions, he was otherwise well. His tail is confused, but as far as one can gather, he did not go more than a quarter of a mile in the direction of the thermometer screen before he decided to turn back. He then tried to walk with the wind a little on one side, on the bearing he had originally observed, and after some time stumbled on an old fish trap hole which he knew to be 200 yards from the cape. He made this 200 yards in the direction he supposed correct, and found nothing. In such a situation, had he turned east, he must have hit the land close to the hut, and so found his way to it. The fact that he did not, but attempted to wander straight on, is clear evidence of the mental condition caused by that situation. There can be no doubt that in a blizzard, a man has not only to safeguard the circulation in his limbs, but must struggle with a sluggishness of brain and an absence of reasoning power which is far more likely to undo him. In fact, Atkinson has really no very clear idea of what happened to him after he missed the cape. He seems to have wandered aimlessly upwind till he hit an island. He walked all around this, says he couldn't see a yard at this time, fell often into the tide crack, finally stopped under the lee of some rocks. Here got his hand frostbitten, owing to difficulty of getting frozen mid on again. Finally got it on, started to dig a hole to wade in, saw something of the moon and left the island, lost the moon and wanted to go back, could find nothing, finally stumbled on another island, perhaps the same one, waited again, again saw the moon, now clearing, shaped some sort of coarse bite, then saw flare on cape and came on rapidly, says he shouted to someone on cape quite close to him greatly surprised not to get an answer. It is a rambling tale tonight and a half-taught brain. It is impossible to listen to such a tale without appreciating that it has been a close escape, or that there would have been no escape had the blizzard continued. The thought that it would return after a short lull was amongst the worst with me during the hours of waiting. 2 a.m. The search parties have returned and all is well again, but we must have no more of these very unnecessary escapades. Yet it is impossible not to realize that this bit of experience has done more than all the talking I could have ever accomplished to bring home to our people the dangers of a blizzard. End of first part of chapter 12